Amen. Take a seat. Let's pray as we get our Bibles out this morning. Lord, as we open up the Word of God, as we come to you, we seek you. We look to be refreshed and encouraged and built up. Lord, we seek ways to honor and glorify you. This is why we are here, to put the spotlight on you, to make you look good. We need our eyes opened. We need our hearts and minds prepared to receive whatever it is that you say to us this morning. And of course, we come full of praise as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Lord, speak through me to bring you glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. Luke 24, 1 through 12. Get your phone out if you have one. The Bible on your phone. There's a Bible in the pews in front of you. Luke 24, 1 through 12. It says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returned from the tomb, and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary, Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up, and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Now, I want to begin this morning by talking about the uniqueness of America and eventually the uniqueness of Christianity. Now, obviously, America, as we know it, it's been a unique country since its inception. We introduced to the world an utterly new form of government, by the way, over 200 years ago, of course, what is that government? Democracy. It's really become the standard for a successful human government around the world to this day. And of course, with the United States being very unique and, and, and so on, we've also introduced to the world a lot of, of interesting items. Of course, we know we introduced the world telephones, 1875. Airplanes, of course, when was that? 1903, Kittyhawk, North Carolina. But did you know that America also introduced to the world electromagnetism in chloroform? In 1831, younger generation, video games. Do you know when the first video game was, was, was created? 1948. Mm -hmm. Mobile phones, 1973. 
It's, it's interesting, too, because did you even think that there was mobile phones in 1973? No. 3D printing, relatively new, right? It was introduced in 1984. All in America. Now, we are such a unique country. Here's some other unique facts about America. Nearly all Americans at 96%, and it's interesting if I, I won't have you do this, but I could have you hold up your cell phone. 96% of Americans now own a cell phone. And 81% of us think that our cell phones are smarter than us, so we require a smartphone, right? <laughs> now, despite the fact that your cell phone is way dirtier than you thought, a survey found that 27% of Americans clean their phones less than once a month or never. Who has never cleaned your cell phone? Who has the courage to admit, I have never cleaned my cell phone? Okay? It makes sense. They're dirty, right? That's according to Reader's Digest. 40% of Americans now use online dating. You know that? You know when online dating began? It was in 1994. Andrew Conru started Web Personals. Do you remember it was 1994-95 is when the internet came out. Remember that whole thing with Bill Gates and discussion of Microsoft, the internet, and so on? And Web Personals was run by a group of Stanford grad students and one high school student. That was the first online dating operation. Uh, 58% of new homes built in America since 1994 do not have front porches. Think about that. Debbie, your home does it even does it have a front, much of a front porch, does it? No. And this is according to the National Association of Home Builders. Of course, there was every home, it seemed like, after World War II had a front porch. And of course, do you know why they were designed that way by architects? It was to cool the house because we didn't really have air conditioning and so on. So the big front porch kept it, the, the house in the shade more often. And you would sit outside. You know, for those of us who are old enough, you remember watching Andy Griffith? And they would sit out in the front porch. Okay? So we don't have front porches anymore. Now we have what? Back decks and back porches. Enclosed in a fence or professionally landscaped so that we don't have to engage with our neighbors. <laughs> right? That's what it's designed for, Privacy. We have garages attached to our homes. So literally, I can get in my house, go to my garage, it's attached, back out of my driveway, drive and do my business, come home. I have neighbors outside mowing. I don't have to acknowledge them. I can open my garage door and go right in and close the garage door. Everything is designed for privacy, and it keeps us away from being connected with our neighbors, right? You know why? Because 31% of Americans don't know their neighbors at all. Another unique fact about America. It's interesting how much architecture has reflected that and even helped that. 31% of Americans don't know their neighbors at all. And of course this leads to the last point. More than three in five Americans, what's three out of five? At 60%, right? So those of you that don't like math, Colette, there we go. <laughs> I hope I know some. 
<laughs> so roughly 60% of Americans are lonely with more and more people reporting feeling like they are left out, poorly understood, and lacking companionship. Now, all of the statistics I just mentioned have one thing in common. They have one common thread that runs through all of them, and that is they center around relationships. Think about it. Cell phones, online dating, and homes are where we establish and nurture relationships, right? Yeah. Yet despite cell phones, which allow us to communicate with others at a rate unknown to previous generations, how many of you find cell phones annoying because you are reachable all the time? We, have a, we can communicate to anybody at any time that was unavailable to previous generations, unknown to previous generations, and despite the advantage of meeting someone online that was never available to previous generations, three out of five Americans say so they're lacking in real relationships. It's very telling, isn't it? Well, this is one characteristic that makes Christianity unique above other religions and other faiths. So I call the two R's of Christianity. What makes Christianity so unique from other world religions? Well, I would argue that it's, number one, the fact that Christianity is a relationship. It's really not a religion. You can qualify it as that, but it's a relationship. That's why the, you know, we read this, that this is eternal life. John said, what is eternal life? Is it sitting in a cloud with playing a harp and just relaxing on a sunny day? That's the vision we get of heaven. No, no, no. Eternal life is knowing somebody. It's a relationship with the living God. It's knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you, you have sent. Now, what does this verse mean? What will you be doing for eternity? Obvious. You're going to get to know God. So Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with the living God. And this is why Jesus rebukes the church in Ephesus with these chilling words. Remember this? To this church, he said, I have this against you. They'd what? Left their first love. I mean, he warned the church in Ephesus the seriousness of this accusation saying that if they did not repent and return to him, Jesus, their first love, he would remove their lampstand from among their place. Meaning he would, that church would cease to exist. And that is what happened to the church in Ephesus. Be, why? Because God wants a relationship. He does not desire religion. By religion, I mean following a set of rules and philosophies. It's a relationship with the person. But the second R of Christianity that's unique to it is what, why we're here this morning. It's a resurrection. The resurrection of God from the dead is unique to Christianity. I mean, there's no resurrection story in Buddhism. There is no resurrection in Hinduism. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is so central to the Christian faith that it is said that everything rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said this, remember these words? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also 
is in vain. It goes on to say, and I didn't put this, these words up here for you, but here they are. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So for Christianity, I mean, it rises or falls on the resurrection. And it's because of this that all four gospel writers, and of course, who are the, the four gospel writers? Matthew. See, if you're awake, good. They testified to the resurrection. And while they differ in some of the details, there are some points that all four writers include on their accounts. And these four points, four or five points and so on, they kind of serve as a line of evidence in defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But before I go any further, let me remind you why Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Sometimes we, we forget this, sometimes we get, don't appreciate it, but the purpose of Jesus Christ becoming a man God incarnate and God in the flesh was that he might conquer death for us. It's just that simple. And the only way he could conquer death for us was to conquer what for us? Sin. He had to conquer sin for us because the payment for sin is death. If the payment for sin has been made, it's been paid, there's no more death. So the fear and sting of death is gone, and death is simply a door that opens up when we are ushered into eternal glory. By resurrecting from the dead, Jesus proves that he not only has power over sin and death, but that God also accepted his death on the cross as full payment for our sin. And that being said, what do all four gospel writers include in their resurrection testimony? Well, we find them all actually in Luke 24, 1 through 12. It's what I call resurrection evidence. The first point of it is this, Jesus' death. You see this? Then the Jews, I want to read this to you, by the way. This is in John 19, okay? Verses 3, 1, 3, 4. Don't go there. Just stay in Luke 24. But it was the fact that Jesus actually died. John wrote this, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, asked Pilate that the legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So here's Jesus with the two other thieves crucified on that day. The soldiers came, they broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break their, his legs. And so what did the soldier do? He pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And that's significant because they didn't break his legs. He was already dead. To confirm this, by ramming a spear in his side, and out came blood and water, meaning his heart had opened up already and poured out blood mixed with lymphatic fluid contained in the pericardium. Plenty of indication that he was, in fact, already dead. And in Luke 23, you can go there since you're in Luke 24, just a few verses earlier, Jesus cries out and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And having said this, he breathed his last. Look at verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council and a good and righteous man, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut in the rock where no one had ever lain. So obviously Jesus has died, and what do you do when someone dies? You bury him. Why, if you die today, you are buried quickly, or you are cremated. Well, why do we do that? The, a dead body is a, it's full of disease. And so they, especially back in those days, they would burn the bodies or they would bury them very quickly. So Jesus is dead. The evidence is overwhelming. That's the first point. Because he was dead, he was buried. The second thing is there's an empty tomb. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24 of Luke. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. This is the women. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they had entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, let me just, one quick thought here. Because these stones are heavy, who rolled the stone away? But it wasn't the soldiers that were sent to guard the tomb. Remember the Jews sent them to guard the tomb because they were afraid the disciples would steal the body and claim he was resurrected. It was, means it was most likely the angels that were there. Rolled, they rolled the, the stone away. The question is, why did they roll the stone away? Because Jesus didn't need them to do that. Because at this point in time on the third day, what body had he received? His glorified body. And do you remember what he could do with his glorified body? He could walk through walls. He could already pass through matter. So he could pass through the stone and appear before people. So again, why was the stone rolled away? It was obviously for our sake. John twenty nineteen. So when he came on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, the disciples were there for the fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. See, his body was already able to go through walls. But the stone was rolled away by the angels so that there would be eyewitness testimony that the tomb was empty. Do you know that? Jesus didn't need it to be rolled away, but it was done for eyewitness testimony. There's also the third point that all the gospel writers include. That's angelic testimony. Verses 4 through 7, while they were perplexed, these women were perplexed about this. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. As the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again? We see what he's referring to, and again, it's those women that were there in Galilee. This is another key point. They were with him for really most of his ministry. And in Matthew 17, they, Jesus said this. While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised in the third day, and they were deeply grieved. Well, guess who was in that crowd hearing him say that? That the angels reference the very women who were there witnessing the empty tomb. Now here's the thing. 
Have you ever noticed, and I know you have, because I've talked to some of you about this, that you can hear the same message many times, and then suddenly the light bulb goes off in your brain, and you get it, right? Yeah. That's what my wife says to me. I've said this four times today. You finally get it, right? Yes, dear. But the light bulb is starting to go off in these women, okay? And that's exactly what verse 8 tells us, and that's the witness of the women. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the leaven and to all the rest. Now, they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, also the other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. And I find it interesting and you just can't escape it because it's in all the gospel messages or gospel accounts that the women were the first to believe. It wasn't the men. Now, this is interesting because women were not considered to be credible witnesses at that time in history. This has led some throughout history to discredit the resurrection accounts. And it's as if a claim of a man rising from the dead isn't hard enough to believe in the first place. That it was a tale originally spread by women simply made it seem preposterous to most people. But after nearly 2,000 years, however, the witness of these women is being seen as more and more historically reliable. The very fact that their witness was not deemed credible in their own time and place, and even at first among the apostles makes it far more likely that they were, in fact, the first witnesses. Ever think about that? Now, anyone who thinks the early church fabricated its accounts of the resurrection must ask themselves why the Gospels all insist on telling the same story of the same women who were the first witnesses. What was once nonsense is now a clear testimony to the resurrection with real historical credibility. And of course, this is kind of funny too, but they all, all the gospel writers have an account of the disciples' unbelief. Look at verse 11 and 12. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Well, how in the world does the disciples' unbelief prove the resurrection? Everything about that. Why would that be recorded? Well, it proves the resurrection because it proves the fact that they would not fabricate a resurrection because they clearly didn't expect one. You see that? They clearly didn't expect one. Now, some critics have said, well, they stole the body and made it look like a resurrection, or they said they wanted it so bad that he was raised from the dead that they hallucinated that it had happened. Well, because they didn't exactly expect it, it proves that they didn't want it so bad. Because they didn't anticipate it, they wouldn't have fabricated it. Furthermore, they wouldn't have seen it as some kind of a hyper-illusionary experience because they had no concept that it would happen. It just wasn't on their radar. It should have been, but it wasn't. Despite being told, and men, it's for the evidence, we just don't get it, right? But we find the disciples thought that the resurrection was nonsense. It's actually kind of sad when you think about it. 
But that all leads to the second point, because it's like a, a two-part sermon. There's the evidence, but I wanted to talk about something different now. I want to talk about seeking the living one. See that in, in verse 5 there? Why do you seek the living one among the dead? You see that? I mean, God has always said that if you seek me, you'll find me. If you seek me, you will find me. Jeremiah 29, 13, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I love that verse, but we must not lose sight of the condition. You will find God when you seek him with all your heart. Now the angel, in essence, shares the same message in Luke 24, 5. Go, go there in, the, in your Bibles. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? That's what they were doing. In a physical sense, they were seeking Jesus amongst the dead in a, in a tomb. Folks, we will find the living one when we look for him in the right place. And the right place is not among the dead. Yet many people are still looking for Jesus among the dead, I find. I think of biblical scholars they, who spend their life studying the words of Jesus in the gospel manuscripts, but do not believe in Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. I think of the archaeologists who 2,000 years later are still trying to find Jesus' body and bones in the tomb, but keep coming up empty. I think of the people who finger the sculpted body of Christ on the crucifixes, but do not know the reality of the living Christ. I think of people who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but also just one of many ways to heaven. So they embrace a faith that has no future because it does not need a risen Savior. These people all have one thing in common. They are all looking for Jesus among the dead. But if you're looking for Jesus among the dead, you will not find him because he is not there. Frank Morrison was a man who spent a good portion of his life looking for Jesus among the dead. He was a British journalist who lived in the early 20th century. He was not a Christian. Although he admired the person of Jesus, Morrison was a skeptic who felt that these stories about Jesus were nothing more than a myth or a legend, especially the story of the resurrection. So he had a brilliant idea why not prove that the resurrection never happened? Why not use his own research skills as a journalist to dig into history and prove that Jesus never rose from the dead? And he would do his research, and then he would write a book presenting the historical facts about Christ and the events surrounding his death. And so Frank Morrison went looking for Jesus among the dead. And you know what? He never found him. What he did find is exactly what Luke says in our passage this morning. He found the stone rolled away, but he did not find the body of Jesus. Instead, he found the risen Christ, and he put his faith in him as Lord and Savior. And Morrison wrote up his research in a famous book called Who Moved the Stone? Have you ever heard of that? Who Moved the Stone? I especially love the title of the first chapter, it's the book that refused to be written. 
Here's what Morrison wrote in the preface. It says, this study is in some ways so unusual and provocative that the writer thinks it desirable to state here very briefly how the book came to take its present form. In one sense, it could have taken no other, for it is essentially a confession. The inner story of a man who originally set out to write one kind of book and found himself compelled by the sheer force of circumstances to write quite another. It is not that the facts themselves altered, for they are recorded imperishably in the monuments in the pages of human history, but the interpretation to be put upon the facts underwent a change. Somehow the perspective shifted, not suddenly as in a flash of insight or inspiration, but slowly, almost imperceptibly, by the very stubbornness of the facts themselves. Frank Morrison set out to write a book disproving the resurrection of Christ. Instead, he ended up writing what has become a Christian classic, presenting evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Morrison went looking for Jesus among the dead, but he didn't find him there. And you will not find him there either. If you want to find Jesus this morning, you can't go looking among the dead. You must go looking among the living. And that brings us to the good news of Easter. Now, Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death in the grave. We sang about that this morning. He rose from the dead this Easter morning, some 2,000 plus years ago. He is alive and well today. But you will not find him among the dead, for he is among the living, and he offers new life to you. And the Bible tells us that those who trust in Christ will share in his resurrection. So the fear of death and judgment is taken away. Now that's good news, especially we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? In fact, the truth is that that's good news anytime. He is risen indeed. But the only question really that needs to be answered this morning is how will you respond? How will you respond? And what's interesting is that in our, the 12 verses we looked at this morning, we see three responses to the resurrection. The first is what I call believe and tell. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is a response that came from the women. They returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And they goes and lists the name of them. They were telling them all these things to the apostles. Notice that, I'm going to highlight this point, they didn't just believe, but they also did what? They reported what they witnessed to the apostles and to everyone there with them. And I find this fascinating because despite the fact that they were probably still somewhat confused and certainly didn't understand the magnitude of what had happened, folks, they still shared what they knew. Okay? This is where it's a little bit of a different Easter sermon. They shared what they knew. Jesus' body was no longer in the grave, and the angels said to them, he had risen from the dead. So the natural response to the resurrection is to do what? Share your faith with others. And of course, this reminds me of the story of another woman in the Bible who had an encounter with Jesus. We find her in John chapter 4 in the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. 
Her encounter with Jesus left such an impression upon her that the text states this in John 4, 28-30. Watch this. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. So again, what's the only natural response when you encounter Jesus? To share it, exactly. Well, it's good news. It's, have you ever had to deliver bad news to somebody? That is not fun. I remember when my grandfather passed away, my dad's side of the family, we were living in Texas, and my grandparents on my mother's side happened to be visiting us. And so I got the call from my, my grandmother, and I called my other grandparents. They came over, and we were waiting for when my dad came home with my mom. And my grandfather was going to have to tell him the news. And those moments of waiting and then having him come in and knowing you have to deliver bad news, that is not fun. But folks, this isn't even like that. How many of you like delivering good news to somebody? And yet, if, quite frankly, if I were to ask you, when was the last time you shared good news with somebody, the gospel with somebody? It may be a while for you to think about that. But that should not be. The natural response to the resurrection is to share it with other people. It's just that simple. Because it's very good news indeed that Jesus died for our sins but rose from the dead and he offers eternal life to all who believe in him. Sadly, you also have this response. Don't believe and do nothing. Look at verse 11. This was the initial response of the apostles, by the way. And it's quite a contrast to the response of the women. Of course, the women's response, they believed and they shared. The apostles didn't believe and they, as a result, did nothing. Look at verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them. Now, how very telling is the heart condition of the apostles? Of course, you would think, right, logically, that they're the ones who spent the most time with Jesus, that they would have eagerly believed the women's testimony. And because they didn't believe, look what it did to their actions. They did nothing. Obviously, the apostles eventually believed, but their initial response mirrors the response of so many people today. They don't believe in Jesus. It all seems like so much nonsense to them. And so they do nothing. And they continue to live their lives as though nothing happened that first Easter morning. Of course, I have to ask, is that your response to Easter? Have you heard the Easter story before, but never really done anything about it? I mean, if so, then you're missing out on the most wonderful news in all the world, that Jesus is alive. And if Jesus rose from the dead, that means that if you put your faith in him, then one day you will rise from the dead too. And that is good news. But maybe you are one who has heard the Easter story and believed. You've put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and that's great. But you have never really told anyone about it. 
You don't tell anyone about the Easter story. And the Bible is crystal clear on how someone believes. They must be told. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Romans 10, 14. God designed this message in, in, in humanity so that we can speak and hear this message. And they will not believe if they do not hear. So those who believe is incumbent upon them to share. Exactly. And finally, you can investigate. This is the final response. And this was Peter's response. It says, Peter got up, verse 12, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Now, if you're not sure, you know, I don't want to make of this whole resurrection story, but this is the third option that you have. Don't simply reject it as nonsense. You can do what Peter did. Check it out for yourself. Peter ran to the tomb. He examined the evidence. He saw the stone that was rolled away. He confirmed the women's witness or testimony. He entered the tomb, saw the strips of linen that once contained the body of Jesus, now lying there by themselves. And then he went looking for Jesus. And you know what? History tells us he found him. Not lying dead in the tomb, but resurrected and alive. And the Bible tells us that Jesus appeared to Peter first before he appeared to the twelve. And this must have taken place somewhere after Peter left the tomb. But Peter was not yet ready to believe that Jesus was alive. But you see, he did not dismiss it either as nonsense. He checked it out for himself. And eventually he encountered the living Christ. Now you might say, well, that's all well and good for Peter. He could run to the empty tomb and check it out. I can't do that today. No, you can't. You can't. But you can't do what Frank Morrison did. He didn't believe it, but at least he checked it out. He searched the facts for himself. You can read Morrison's book, Who Moved the Stone, or Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter, or Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, or more recently, Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Because if you seek him with all your heart, what's the promise? You will find him, exactly. And there are other good resources out there They'll present you the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Or maybe you're not into reading. But you can come and talk with me. Let me share with you the evidence that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. If you're not ready to believe this morning, don't just dismiss it all as nonsense. Don't you owe it to yourself to at least investigate the claims of Christianity? Be like Peter and check it out for yourself. And so really, that's kind of the application point. If you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, don't dismiss it. Investigate it. Check it out. Then make your choice. For the rest of us that have believed, then you can do this. Enjoy Easter Sunday. Eat your ham and your peeps 
and your chocolate bunnies. And I am accepting chocolate bunnies, by the way, as a little tithe to me if you want to do that. I'll eat chocolate bunnies, all right? And I'll even eat the ears first, all right? Well, let's close with this song this morning, shall we? Let's praise him for, the, for all he's done for us, and especially for raise, being resurrected from the dead. God bless you.